वेलकम टू सेंटॉक द सेंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द फैकल्टी ऑफ सफरिंग विल थिंक अबाउट ह्यूमन सफरिंग एंड एक्सप्लोर इट्स मीनिंग पर्पस कॉजेस एंड लिमिट्स व्हाई डू वी सफर इवन व्हेन देयर इज नो मटेरियल डिप्रिवेशन does all suffering have social roots however is suffering related to the very nature of being human does it depend upon our ways of living is it context specific how did gandhi suffer can the capacity to suffer be deployed to counter oppression is it immoral to watch others suffer and not do anything about it how has our attitude to suffering changed over the years can suffering be performed and what is the future of our self consciousness and suffering we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor faisal dev ji he is a historian and is interested in political thought He is from University of Oxford. Professor Pushpesh Kumar. He is a sociologist and is always interested in doing ethnography. He is from University of Hyderabad. And Dr. David Weberman. He is a philosopher and is at Central European University at Budapest. uh so david why don't you set the ball rolling with you um with maybe the central question that we're trying to grapple with today uh why do we suffer and at least when when ostensibly one doesn't need to when we're provided for we don't have obvious material deprivations um what what does the philosopher in you say about this you've thought about this a little bit Yes, well, I would say that uh, we suffer because we're animals and animals inevitably suffer, but the question that's arisen in my mind is why we suffer so much or why or whether we suffer even when we don't need to suffer unnecessary. Un- well, within quotes. Unnecessarily or at least for a reason that isn't easily discernible. Mm-hmm. So if you're in pain, or if you're diseased or uh if something is pinching you uh then it's easy to see why you're suffering but what has struck me is that uh human beings seem to suffer even when they're physically comfortable and even when they haven't suffered or they haven't undergone a loss such as a, a close family member or a friend dying when there's nothing easily to point to we suffer than nevertheless and that has intrigued me um and made me wonder if uh perhaps human beings are best differentiated from other animals um by the fact that we suffer uh when it seems that we don't need to suffer So you think it's a unique kind of capacity at least that's the hypothesis uh or tendency tendency yes uh so what i'm thinking is that perhaps it has something to do with 
who we are as human beings, the fact that we are rather intelligent animals and uh, self-conscious animals. So it could be that there's something about the nature of uh, consciousness and intelligence. Why do you which, bring consciousness in here? I mean, do you, you think it's a result of some kind of reflection, some kind of a process of comparing oneself, placing oneself in the world, uh, seeing where others are, where we are vis-a-vis -vis others. Why do we suffer? Let, let, let's just put that provisionally aside to say that maybe we have a tendency to suffer unlike other animals. So maybe there's a dispute there, but we leave that aside. But yeah. why? I mean, why do you think that's the case? I mean, the reason I choose the term consciousness, there are a few reasons. One is consciousness is a large topic in contemporary philosophy. Mm. In fact, in analytic philosophy today, it's perhaps the central topic. Mm. What is consciousness? How do we explain it, given our material uh, uh, embodiment? Uh, how is it that some tissue inside of our skulls can can uh, be conscious of simple things or complex things. So that's a main topic in philosophy. That's one reason I choose the word consciousness. What's also interesting is, for example, um, in the late 19th century, Dostoevsky wrote a small uh, novella called Notes from the Underground. Hmm. And it's about a, a human being who's miserable and suffering. And uh, one of the words used in the first few pages by Dostoevsky is consciousness. Hmm. It's, it's like what we suffer from and the reason we're from so miserable has to do with the fact that we're highly conscious creatures. You know, so there it's put not in terms of uh, cognitive sophistication, which is something a machine might have, but something specific that he calls consciousness. And another reason maybe to use the term consciousness is because maybe a large part of consciousness is that it involves self-consciousness. Right. So we're not only conscious of things, but we're conscious that we're conscious of things. It's reflexive. Yeah, so there's this reflexive quality. And uh, so that but seems... But is, is it a sickness? You know, Dostoevsky probably means it in that sense, does he? Well, it seems that consciousness isn't a sickness, but it leads to a sickness, yeah. or it can lead to a sickness, or it can lead to misery or suffering. And so um, you might ask, well, why? Why would consciousness lead in that direction? Um, might be good to be conscious. You process a lot of information if you're conscious, and the more conscious you are, perhaps, the more information you process. And why should information processing lead to anything like misery? And so, you know, there are various answers that might be given to this. And there's a literature in philosophy of the 19th and 20th century uh, called existentialism. And you, you see figures such as Kierkegaard and right. Nietzsche and Heidegger and Sartre. And they, uh, I think they seem to be conscious. <laughs> I didn't want to use the word conscious. They seem to be uh, very attentive to the fact that um, we suffer and that this... Life is a challenge, 
Uh, even besides, you know, filling our tubbies and getting a roof over our heads, it's a challenge. And so, but they go into different places with this. So for Kierkegaard, being a self is particularly problematic because it means that uh, one thinks of oneself as being something and one has enough distance from that to reflect on it and then it involves also the idea that uh, one can be more of a self or less of a self, sort of le more autonomous and less autonomous. And all of this, Kierkegaard thinks, is a tremendous challenge. Or mm. in a figure like Sartre, it has a lot to do with choice and freedom, mm. which causes anguish. Mm. So there are different directions philosophers have gone in to explain what it is about consciousness that is so burdensome. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And we'll, we'll get back to some of these questions. Pushpesh, um, you're a sociologist. Um, obviously, we've thought of notions of freedom and autonomy in a little bit. Um, does, does all of suffering have social roots? Um, how do, where, where do the others come in? Of course, we are in the world and we try to figure ourselves out and maybe struggle with this distance a little bit with with our core selves or whatever that might be. Um, but how do you think about this? Yeah, um, I do think because suffering, basically in my understanding, starts with two things primarily, fear of death and fear of decay. Because people think they might decay or sickness or illness and there is always a constant fear of death also to the people. And that may trigger them, trigger something within them and they might suffer. And there are unexplicable reasons for suffering. You know, you cannot uh, have a cause for every kind of a suffering. But if you, if you are materially, in, in material sense, if you are prospered, you're not materially deprived, you are in a position to better negotiate with your suffering than if you are materially deprived. That is my, uh, my take on it and my understanding of this. So we cannot reduce every suffering to the economics, right? And we cannot have, we cannot determine reasons and causes for every kind of suffering, right? Unless and until you engage with... Uh, very many specific cases of suffering. Is it is it is it context specific? Is it person specific? Do some of us suffer more? Do some of us suffer less? Defin now, no two individuals and circumstances are similar or identical. I think definitely there are suffering, as Professor David was uh, talking about, uh, and he was quoting uh, some of the philosophers. So, who will have those kind of suffering? Who can suspend their life from the everydayness and their mundane material world? The people who are always their everydayness is embedded in mundane and material world and struggle for that, struggle for existence. But maybe they do not have time much for, you know, to have that level of consciousness to critically engage with their suffering. But maybe engaging with the everyday is an escape from that suffering to begin with. No, you know? people are forced to engage with the everyday mundane uh, life and struggle for the bare subsistence, 
struggle for the bare existence they can't suspend themselves from that everydayness and that mundane aspect of life to reach at a higher level of consciousness to engage with why we suffer how we suffer suffering in the spiritual realm or whatever is this a little problematic because we we kind of elevating suffering to you know let's say higher level of consciousness no so this kind of suffering is qualitatively different hmm. right hmm. and for the people who can afford leisure time the hmm. philosophers they all coming from mostly they are coming from this privileged class background some right? of them yes some of them no but some of them no but most of them yes hmm. right so they can go into the uh, into the realm of consciousness and theorize about it and think about it how personal how personal that. is the suffering does the suffering have a personal quality i know you spoken about i and me and you know one's own distance to one's own self and autonomy and all that but is can it be i think the personal is not so much severed from uh, the context in which you are embedded mm-hmm. right so it is always also uh, your social your, your social positioning your context your individual biography right so for you and the context so for you it would be a certain kind of anxiety anxiety not out of nothing right okay. anxiety may have certain linkages with the context right and the biography hmm both uh so pushpesh is it always context specific is it person specific how 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 personal is it no i think for a majority of uh, people uh who are uh, the underclass people for example i'd say that their suffering has uh has social roots and certain structural factors and forces determined the way they suffer right for the people who are materially that that's because they are differently socially configured they are yeah. they are they are more social than others is that is that the is that the reason that i can't say but also your material prosperity and material deprivation de- de- determines the kind of suffering you fall in yeah you could have both material right. and spiritual suffering right it yeah where are you on this vessel i think uh, we've discussed a few aspects uh, here and there and you've thought about gandhi for example a little bit and obviously there are other traditions that we can get into um but what is suffering for you and what is suffering from your understanding of how gandhi thought about it? and this is not about gandhi himself but you know what what one can think about this question from that vantage point well first of all i would say as a historian that um, the way in which you use that word suffering hmm. the english word hmm. even when it is used in countries such as india hmm. um has a different connotation uh, hmm. and so it seems to me to presume some level of duration suffering has duration it's not just immediate it's not a uh, it has temporality built into it and as david was saying um uh, but also pushpesh uh, it often depends upon temporality in other larger ways so um uh, it depends upon say regret for a past uh, or memories of a past and anxiety or anticipation for the future uh which is why uh, one of the things someone like gandhi will say is 
how might we be able to live in the present? Is it possible to actually live purely in the present? So it's the presence of other times that somehow leads to some kind of suffering. So it's either a regret of the past or yes, exactly. anxiety of the future. Uh, and, you know, but in a way, the the demand or the question about whether we can live purely in the present is not simply a question that is about the alleviation of suffering, Um which for someone like Gandhi was inevitable in any case because violence was inevitable in all lives, however situated, though of course differently uh, defined. Uh, so there's no such one. thing as no suffering. The very act of living means that we suffer in some shape or form. Is, is, is that the idea? I, I want to get the tenor right. So, yes, um, yes. But again, I would, I would uh, question the term suffering, mm-hmm. uh, which as even someone like Gandhi gets it, comes if I'm correct, from a kind of recension of Christian teachings from right. the New Testament, which he reads, of course, with great pleasure. Perhaps pleasure and suffering shouldn't go together, but they often do in Gandhi's, uh, mm-hmm. in Gandhi's case. Um, but the other words that he uses are much more nuanced and differentiated. Such and they as? don't presume suffering simply as the reception by a passive subject of some experience that is from the outside. So often for him, what what happens with suffering is that it has to be made into an agential experience. It is something you voluntarily uh, incur. Uh, so, and let me give you some examples. Uh, so, um, sacrifice, which is in Gandhi's view the most important bit of suffering, which has moral meaning. Suffering on its own, in his view, has no moral meaning. Right. If you are a victim, that is of no moral consequence. Um, uh, if you sacrifice, and there are various ways in which you can do that, there's tyag, renunciation, there is prayaschit, a penance, there is balidan, literally a giving of the self, a gifting of your body, and there is the one Arabic word here, shahadat, martyrdom, right. which in Arabic as in Greek means witnessing. So you, your suffering is meant to bear witness uh, to, some, uh, to some phenomenon. And in all these senses of suffering are about agency. They are not about passivity. They are not about uh, receiving an experience uh, that is caused elsewhere, external to you. But it's about turning suffering into moral purposiveness. But for for one's own self? for Because some of this can trip into vanity, right? Um, yes. Rather easily. Yes, there is always the risk of um, suffering becoming uh, narcissistic. Yes. Uh, and there's always the ambiguity in it. And Gandhi, someone like Gandhi, but not only him, uh, is very, very conscious of this, uh, which is why he sets upon himself all these uh, tests. Uh, when should I begin to fast? Uh, when do I need to expose my body to physical violence? Uh, when might others do such things? And he's constantly counseling people who write to him, uh, uh, saying, no, actually, don't fast. This is not the right moment for it. You don't want to cheapen that moral experience either, that experience which is not of suffering as received, but suffering as incurred voluntarily. Um, uh, so, you know, he's... he's, he's, he's which, which, which has a reward in return, a social reward. or But there's also a way in which there is an everydayness to this, right? There's a way in which you fast regularly. There's a way in which you... Um, you practice a certain kind of sacrifice and you use some other words on an everyday basis. Um, so 
it's a it's a performance of sorts, isn't it? It is a performance, and in a way, it's a performance uh, at least in two ways, in, in two senses. One, it's a performance insofar as you are as a kind of practice where you control something uh, and push it to a moral purposiveness. So it leads to uh, inner change. It leads, it leads to, to it, inner and outer change. Hmm. Uh, you're not meant to do it in order to save yourself from the narcissism of suffering, which becomes self-pity. Uh, suffering is always meant to be for the other, not for yourself. Uh, so you're meant to suffer, if we can even use that word, since I've given you so many others that Gandhi uses. Uh, suffering is actually the worst word you can use. For <laughs> Say, if you sacrifice, right. which is a form of suffering, if you sacrifice for another, um, uh, you're doing so not simply to help them, uh, you're internalizing violence in order to convert the other if the other is your enemy. But you can also save the other insofar as the other is the victim of some other form of violence. But all of this somehow occupies a fairly high moral ground, Faisal, right? I mean, doing things for others and things of that sort. But, you know, if one look, looks at relatively more mundane acts like just fasting, what does that do? Uh, um, you know what I mean? I mean, to, you know, you practice celibacy. What is that? I mean, there, there are relatively minor acts. Now, it's difficult to put a finger on what what exactly are you achieving for others. They seem to be almost entirely self-directed or uh, am I getting something wrong here? Well, they could be. Uh, I think what Gandhi's doing is um, precisely trying not to make these forms of sacrifice into higher abstractions. Right. Uh, so in his society, as you know, uh, practices like fasting are everyday, going back to what Pushpesh was saying, are everyday things that, say, women do right. uh, very often, right? Um, for their families, for their kids. Families for, do. For, for, and yeah. so for him, sacrifice is not some exalted or unusual thing. Not it, some it, major universal category. It is you know, built, not being done for the divine or yeah. for some... It, it could be directed towards the divine, but in fact, it's built into the structure of everyday life. Hmm. Uh, that in, he, he argues, for instance, that everyone knows that families, you know, parents will sacrifice for the children, children will sacrifice for the parents, lovers will sacrifice for each other, friends will sacrifice for one another, and that no human society can exist without sacrifice. And sacrifice is a way of taking violence and turning it inwards right. so as to give it moral purpose. Right. So if, in fact, all human relations are built upon sacrifice in some sense, uh, then Gandhi's question is, how can we actually expand the realm of sacrifice? And for him, sacrifice is also crucial because it is fundamentally democratic. And this is Gandhi in his character as a would-be Democrat. So right. democratic in the sense that everybody can do it. Everyone, everybody can, can sacrifice. Fast, but everybody cannot kill. Everybody can fast well, unto death. But in what sense do you mean democratic? Well, for instance, if you take you know quite everyday conventional views of moral uh, action, often we think they depend upon choice. Hmm. Right? You have to choose hmm. the right thing to do. For Gandhi, this actually doesn't work because choice depends upon knowledge. Knowledge depends upon class, education, so gender, things. many such so things. So this is a way of incorporating ignorance and compulsion. Exactly. In a, in a way, it's a radical ignorance. Right. For him, sacrifice is truly democratic because everyone has something to sacrifice. Right. And, you know, the example he gives, which is very interesting, is from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, where Arjuna doesn't want to fight. 
uh, you know, he his divine charioteer Krishna leads him to the middle of the battlefield between the two opposing armies and Arjuna sits in his chariot and his great bow falls from his hands and he says, how can I kill my relatives and my preceptors in the opposing army? And Krishna says to him, but you must. And in Gandhi's interpretation, uh, Arjuna precisely has no choice. His choice has been rendered superfluous. If he goes or if he stays, the war is going to happen. Right. People are going to be killed. So how do you make morality possible when choice itself has become illusory? And he is interesting because for normally in, in, uh, in sort of moralistic uh, philosophies, the battlefield is the very limit of moral life. Yeah. That is what you want to avoid. For Gandhi, that's where morality must occur. That's so interesting. Do do these things go together for you? Sacrifice? Is sacrifice, at least in the way in which uh, one practices it, uh, does it always go together with suffering? Uh, is there no. a way in which sacrifice can lead to inner change? Is there a way in which sacrifice can be harnessed? And you know, Gandhi seems to have had a few things to say about this. Um, can be used for inner change, for inner transformation, for change in the world more broadly. Well, it strikes me that with suffering, one might have very different sorts of things in mind. So, um, so what I was primarily thinking of was suffering as roughly equivalent to being in a state of displeasure, right, or discontentment, or misery, something that is bad in an existential just, kind of way, almost. Uh, in a very in a way in which it feels bad right. to someone, not to some third party, but we all feel pleasure and we all feel pain. Pain is a bad, and suffering is a name, different word for another kind of bad thing that can happen to us. So that's one thing that one might associate with suffering. But on the other hand, there's a whole different way to think about suffering, which may be closer to... Um, and then there's the association with the word passive. Yeah. For example, in German, the word for passive in a grammatical sense, as opposed to active, is the word suffering, which struck <laughs> me when I first learned German. So there's this association, I think, etymologically and otherwise, that suffering is, is what happens to one rather than agency. Uh, and, and then thirdly, there's this association of suffering with, uh, uh, with Christian... Um, ascetic ideals and morality, and maybe with Gandhi, too, uh, it seems. So their suffering doesn't mean something that's bad, um, necessarily, or something that's to be uh, thought of as identical to displeasure. Their suffering has a very positive role to play, where suffering becomes uh, has value and has, in fact, great value. So uh, I'm not saying that these two don't go together at all because it could be what feels bad has great value, but they could come apart. So not everything that feels bad has great value and not everything that has great value feels bad. Right. But suffering in this third sense of something that is valuable and deeply valuable, there's a little reflection on that in the Western tradition. For example, Nietzsche uh, was someone who thought that suffering had great value and that someone who hasn't suffered... Um, hasn't lived. 
hasn't lived very deeply, has led a very shallow life, and has led a life without real growth, because suffering is sort of necessary to grow, to overcome oneself and be more than what one has been. Um, so in this sense so of this suffering... So is, this, is, this is in the sense of transcending one's own self? Or, or, or in what, what, what do you mean by growth? Just simply self-betterment. So, I mean, through suffering, one becomes, um, one becomes stronger and maybe wiser and uh, maybe... Uh, more assertive, you know, so, and then this idea of sacrifice, which is so central to Gandhi, that's a particular conception of the value of suffering, that the value of suffering uh, might be best exemplified through sacrifice, which is not something you find so much in Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was more sort of selfish about this whole thing, I think. Um, so I don't think of sacrifices. Uh, I think of that as one m way in which um, uh, suffering can be valuable through sacrifice. Do some of us suffer more? Is it? I, I, I want to go back to that question. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Why so? Well, I think is it human, just temperamental. Or? Well, I think human beings are nothing but variations. So. There's nothing that we're all equal about. We're not all equally happy and we're not all equally tall or short or fat or thin and we're not equally all suffering. Um, but do you, do you mean it in precisely that sense? So obviously there's statistical distribution across human population of all kinds of things. So there is statistical I'm, distribution of whatever, let's say, capacity to suffer. There's some difficulty in knowing what suffering is and how to measure it. It's sub so subjective. But even if one leaves behind those problems, I would take it that human beings differ in the amount they suffer. Uh, I would think that some human beings are more content, whether it's through their genes or whether it's through their circumstances or whether it's through their effort. Um, so I would think there would be great variations on this point. Who suffers, Pushpesh? Is there a way to answer that question? I, uh, I do think when you're talking about Gandhi suffering and creating a moral force around himself, right, and also instilling a guilt in the mind of the colonial power, and that becomes a kind of performance, and Gandhi also embody certain moral force. But let me draw another uh, another example from the life of the sex workers and the prostitutes. Oh. I was talking to some of the women in prostitution in Hyderabad city. They are forcefully institutionalized oh. and they are suffering within that context of forced institutionalization. Their daughters are being raped where the, the, the daughters are separated off from the mother. They are also suffering. But can they create the similar moral force and embody similar moral force at Gandhi could through his sufferings the right? answer is no so there are there are differences in terms of who you are where do you stand Gandhi is a man an upper caste and so he's bringing all upper caste principles of fasting etc etc from uh, from from the women of these upper caste families right and then if we articulate and stress this point further i think we are also essentializing gender 
right that women are primarily peace loving and sacrificing and all that and there are feminine virtues which asis nandi talks about so there is also a kind of essentializing so i think gandhi can afford to do so but a woman woman in prostitution who is poor and who is forcefully institutionalized under the trafficking law of uh, uh, of the under the trafficking bill which exists and the trafficking bill which is now to be passed which is more draconian and the life configurates it very differently for her so even if he is suffering she cannot be gandhi why she cannot be gandhi what's the answer see see sacrificing see sacrificing in some other way but she cannot Being exert forced. the same moral force as gandhi can afford to do you know being under some kind of moral suasion being under so this moral for me is a very under... dangerous word hmm. in certain ways it also has the implication of depriving certain other kinds of experiences of suffering hmm. right which why, cannot configurate as gandhi's suffering configurates right in certain ways so there could be levels and levels on which suffering can be conceptualized yes david yeah you might say that gandhi's model of suffering is a, a good model for moral heroes but that the underprivileged are not well placed to become moral heroes right and so they can't fight the good fight in the same way that I think there is a way in which uh, you know sometimes it can be done when it's not happening to you so I mean, you know when it happens to you it's under duress and you know it's it's, it's another kind of thing yes Faisal well let me give you an example of um, an underprivileged woman um, hmm. who assumes explicitly gandhian moral force and that is rosa parks in right. the american south yeah who as you know refused to go to the back of the bus yes she was on her way back from a gandhi reading group um when mm. she did that and that was a deliberate explicit invocation of a gandhian practice of non-cooperation in this case and she became a moral heroine in doing so now perhaps this could happen because she was not indian because she was not part of the caste and gender bound hierarchical society of india but what it shows us is that you know there doesn't have to be a kind of um uh, um join the dots link uh, made between something someone says in this case say gandhi uh and what happens uh that sometimes these practices become meaningful only when they're separated from their context right uh because after all as i think um uh, david or pushpesh said you know uh, context is everything and and gandhi comes back to it repeatedly because he thinks he goes so far as to deny the existence of a singular moral subject you know to use that word moral that there is no such thing uh that everyone must make a decision on the basis of who they are and where they are placed so it cannot be deployed as a formula everywhere it's not a formula and people are not generic people right. right so you have to so if arjuna has to stay and fight it is because of his caste he belongs to the kshatriya caste because his own history has led him to that battlefield of kurukshetra due to his own uh, uh, errors and omissions and sins um along with those of others because he's a man and not a woman so all of those things determine who arjuna is and how he can act um and therefore that determination has been has to be made separately by everyone 
So if one looks at, uh, and this is not about Gandhi at all, but if one looks at this whole idea of fasting unto death, for example, you know, you you threaten to kill yourself um, in front of somebody who's willing to kill you. Now, why does that work? I mean, that's interesting because, of course, as you say, it pre-exists Gandhi mm. and it, it continues long after him. Mm. Uh, and one has to think of, you know, people like uh, Turkish or Irish prisoners. Uh, um, IRA prisoners use this a lot. Yes. But communist uh, prisoners in Turkish jails um, uh, have used this a lot. Um, and there are other cases, of course. Um, and Gandhi knew of these these cases I've just mentioned occur after Gandhi. But Gandhi knew of prior cases, suffragettes. Uh, for instance, fighting for the vote for women. Uh, and some were uh, a site which was greatly inspiring for Gandhi, which is the behavior of Afrikaner or Boer women right. in concentration camps in South Africa during the Boer War. So it is their experience and endurance that gave Gandhi the idea, idea of something of, called Satyagraha. Satyagraha. Right. So here what we have is what appears to be a highly nativistic Indic type idea, though it's a neologism, Satyagraha does not exist before Gandhi, Mm. um, actually comes out of a non-Indian situation, again, gender-defined. It's women that he's looking at. Um, The the, the question, Faisal, is why does it work? I mean, is is it a case of the oppressor feeling empathy? Um, It's a complex enough question, so one gets it. But why why does it work? When deployed? I mean, I suppose... um, uh, why does it work sometimes? Again, there's it, nothing generic about these things. I guess it can work through process of identification or shaming or guilt, as uh, as someone uh, just said here earlier. Um, uh, and often it is the it is the. Uh, but what is crucial for this is that it should be voluntarily born. Hmm. If it otherwise, it simply becomes degradation. That if you are a victim. Uh, you don't have that kind of moral agency. Uh, perhaps these prostitutes that Bushbesh was talking about. Uh, and it's not easy, of course, to turn victimhood into agency. Uh, but it's the choice. Uh, it's choice of that kind, not choice based on knowledge. Right. That is crucial for someone like Gandhi. So how do you turn degradation into agency, and it's the agency that allows for identification, shaming, guilt, uh, and fundamentally and finally conversion, which is what he's interested in. So you need to convert your enemy by your, what he calls, self-suffering. It's a Christian theme, of course, as well, because the the life of Jesus is the... But also Socrates. So Gandhi translates Plato's apology into Gujarati, and uh, the Plato's apology, of course, is about the trial and willing death of Socrates, so he takes both the theological, uh, um, uh, classical theological example from Christianity of the life of Jesus and the classical philosophical archetype of sacrifice from the life of Socrates um, uh, to explore uh, suffering or sacrifice in ways that, um, as you can tell, are not necessarily nationalist. They are not necessarily Indian. They are not bound by civilization. But they are not easily universalizable either. 
you you the one question i want to go back to david which if you feel is appropriate we should think about a little bit is this whole notion of choice right and the profusion of choices um do you think that has a a very specific and meaningful role to play in a more widespread kind of suffering right and now one doesn't need to situate it in individuals and specific heroes and moral heroes and so on but if one thinks of it more generically like do we as human beings suffer more than before and you know questions like these are always problematic at many levels um the very fact that we live in a world where there are more choices the very fact that we live in a world where we have to make more choices does it lead to does it set the ground for us suffering more maybe not in as intense ways as um some of these people may have is is there a, is there a very crucial link between the two uh well in someone like sartre you have the idea that choice or freedom is both uh the great uh essence of being human but also the great challenge so at one point he compares uh being free with the feeling you have when you're walking along a cliff hmm. and you know that you could easily just throw yourself off the cliff for no reason at all and for some reason you feel tempted to do so even though you don't really want to die there's something tempting about just uh having that opportunity and then thinking that you should take it so he thinks that having a lot of choice is a bit like that it's dizzying to know that there are any number of ways in which one can go and there's nothing that really ultimately militates in favor of one and against the others is there something tempting about suffering itself the act of suffering um no so i i i <laughs> think what's being what's tempting in that case is just uh the possibility of making any sort of well i i i think what's especially relevant about that parallel is that there's something dizzying about it and the uh, range of choices all the way to having yeah, the ability to kill yourself there's something dizzying about having all of these choices and having no real foundational reason for choosing one over the other so that that's a that's a kind of suffering that isn't a gandian suffering no no of course uh, it, it's it's just a kind of a uh, source in which we might walk around somehow dizzied and numbed and even bored by all of the choices we face without any good reason to do one rather than the other um, yeah because the, i mean there's a way in which one could think of the notion of suffering around notions like boredom and loneliness and things of that sort right of course there are the more exalted versions where would uh, you be on this perspective uh, I, yeah. i just wanted to say one last thing and that is yes. uh so the way I, these existentialist philosophers talk about it is it's something about the condition humaine you know the the human condition uh but another way to see it is this is this is just nonsense to think this is a result of the human condition really this is this is a result of specific historical and social circumstances and that you could go any number of different directions with this you might say with marx well the reason we don't simply find value in our actions and our choices uh is because we're somehow alienated 
Right. And that has to do with concrete historical and social circumstances. And so these philosophers are just being mystifying yeah. when they talk about a human yeah. condition. One should be context-specific. One should look at historical and social circumstances that can be... Um, uh, alienating not just for the poor and the underprivileged, but for everyone, but even for ways. the comfortable as well. I think this is a point you were making a while ago about this essentialism point, right? When we essentialize this whole notion of suffering, yeah, we somehow also, give it a. Also, when we say hmm. that uh, we suffer even if we have everything around us and kind of thing. And as, as you say that the, some of the philosophers try to mystify it. As a sociologist, I want to denaturalize suffering right. rather than naturalizing it. If, if you say it has no reason or if it is not context specific or anything, then it becomes completely mystified. And then also... No, I think I, I want to pose it in a more specific way, Pushpesh. Do you think it's an error to say that it is human to suffer? I mean, is it a spurious argument? It sounds very nice. Yeah, to me, yes. Is it a spurious yes. argument to, me, to say to that me, it yes. is human to suffer? Maybe there's I, nothing I, human. I do not want to naturalize suffering in this manner. Suffering needs to be demystified. So suffering has, needs to be denaturalized. We may not have found the specific causes. Maybe there are no specific causes, but you, you, you mentioned structural. There may be something structural about it. There may be historical reasons and factors, as David is talking about. Yeah, it. in case of... People who are underclass, and mostly the people who are underclass, they are or subalterns. They are the one who suffer in specific ways. But I think since you're going to the underclass every time, Pushpesh, which is totally fine. Yeah. Would you agree that everybody suffers in some ways for different things? I I want to be. Definitely, everybody suffers, and it may have certain structural reasons. It may it, it may not be reduced to economic. Uh, economic reasons, there could be cultural reasons, there could be some other reasons, right? For example, in a very prosperous family, uh, now in India, you, you can see that section 377 has been read down, but the people who have a different erotic preference right. can also suffer despite material prosperity and prosperity of all sorts, right? Right, And that the reason of that may be in certain structural, the patriarchal kind of a structure in which only the two genders are identified as a legitimate genders, right? Sure. So uh, to me, to say that... Uh, Suffering is just like a free-floating kind of a, a, a thing or entity is something which is not so convincing to me. For right. any kind it, it of It has world. to have certain context, certain cultural, social, economic, political uh, roots or in some way one can try for to any, engage with suffering and contextualize it. For any kind of world with any history and any set of circumstances, would you say... And, and posing this to you as a sociologist, would you say that some people are more at ease in that world and some people less so? Again, I don't want to go to that statistical, statistically distributed kind of point, but there are some of us who are maybe suffer more and suffer less. I want to so, get your thing so the, on this. So suppose some people, did I place her out of suffering, hmm. right? Who are these people who can derive pleasure out of suffering, right? Who are, who's... Everyday mundane things are being taken care of, right? They're in a position to do that. And they have a choice to suffer in certain ways. So you think it's a, then it right. becomes an aesthetic or an intellectual pursuit? Aesthetic as kind of a suffering, <laughs> right? With certain classes of people, 
certain kind of biographies can afford to do, but not the others. Would you agree, Faisal? Do you think these two lie on a continuum, pain and pleasure? They, yes. You can uh, but, trip into one and the other very easily. I, I know you're a historian, so I don't want to box yeah. you too much on this. But Well, I mean, I suppose one of the sort of um, places where pain and pleasure come together, of course, is in the Marquis de Sade. And um, right. it's interesting when you look at his texts, how suffering is linked to language. Mm-hmm. So the person doing the suffering and therefore giving the pleasure, uh, giving pleasure to one who is chastising him or her, constantly voices his or her own suffering uh, in language, not simply by cries, but literally by describing what is happening to them. Now, that I find fascinating, you know, that it's not the authorial description. It's not the Marquis de Sade himself who's saying, he will describe quite mechanically, okay, such and such uh, contraption was devised in which to torture so-and-so. But it's the person who's tortured who actually fully describes uh, what's happening to them. And that is what seems to impart the pleasure. Now, it puts me in mind of uh, the way in which modern medicine requires the patient to describe in order for the doctor to know what to do <laughs> in language what they are feeling. And right. often they don't, people don't have, especially in cross-cultural situations, you know, dealing, say, with immigrants in, in the West, right? Sure. And I've seen it very often either with my own relatives or with others. You know, what words, is it a burning? Is it a this? Is it a that? You know, how, does, how do those things translate? So language and suffering seem to be very closely connected. This goes back to something David was saying about philosophers and uh, uh, existential ones in particular. Uh, Heidegger comes to mind here, of course. Um, uh, so both pleasure and pain require language, um, uh, uh, expression in language. And when that doesn't happen, can we speak of a pure experience of suffering? So, uh, so but you know, the moment you say language, uh, you know, you think of articulation, you think of it as some kind of a skill. And of course, there are these cultural issues and, you know, uh, somebody in one culture may express the same experience in ways that are easily mis- misunderstood by another. But it's almost a skill, no? Can one train oneself to suffer better? Can one train oneself to experience one own thing, one's own thing better? Or are these just linguistic labels? Do you know what I mean? I, I want to draw this link between language and suffering, language and experience. Well, I'm thinking that they might they might be linked in the way we experience suffering. But if babies and and uh, non linguistic animals suffer, then you can have suffering without language. Uh, now, perhaps our suffering is thoroughly linguistically structured, just as our experience is, you know. Um, I was thinking, though, uh, someone I think we haven't mentioned up until now, or or a philosophy we haven't mentioned, is Buddhism. And so there's a, there's a, they talk a lot about suffering. The word there is uh, samsara, or is that another word? Dukkha. Uh, Dukkha. Uh, Dukkha. Dukkha. So, and there, from I've dabbled in it, uh, I think one of the ideas is that suffering is, stems from having a self and that the self is an illusion. And to the extent that one can escape the illusion that one is a self, one frees oneself from suffering. And then also this idea, which you find in Western Stoicism, 
that attachment and desire is a source of suffering. And so can one train oneself to suffer better? Well, one can train oneself to simply detach oneself, detach from. oneself from one's uh, sensations and also sensations of pain and pleasure and adopt a purely observational attitude towards them. Towards one's own life. Towards and, and Push Pesh doesn't sound very happy, doesn't look very happy. And this is too abstract for you, Push Pesh? Um, yeah, uh, I mean... What about the suffering? You know, one one can belong to a class or to a group which which is, for structural reasons or otherwise, suffering. And, you know, even within that group, there may be variations and so on. But what about the structuring of, of a very unique kind of sufferer, somebody who doesn't share that pain or those circumstances with anyone else? My question is, look, again, we're trying to place oneself somewhere on this axis of suffering or whatever being individual versus social. And I know you wanted to, you prefer to denaturalize it, to put it in a context. Um, and one is just trying to understand of, I think the question is, can one train oneself to suffer better? Can one train oneself to... Is is it a maladjustment problem? Is Does one suffer because one is not fully socialized in the right kind of way or something, something no, of that kind? I don't kind? think so because that would be a very functionalist way of understanding suffering that if you are not able to adjust to the norms of the society or the or the whatever is prescribed for you and then you are suffering and then you are maladjusted. This is a very functionalist way of understanding society itself that so society is like a body and different, different segments of society are working towards the maintaining of this body social right i i i do not think saying so. certain times people suffer because of this norms they, they cannot uh, withstand the pressure of these norms hmm. these normatives are so oppressive that it make people suffer let me talk in this in in this manner rather so what can be done what's the future what can be done what should be done now obviously would you agree that suffering would always be there in the world Suffering uh, are there, suffering will be there, but suffering also have a creative role, I think. Mm -hmm. As Butler is talking about vulnerability as power, oh. right? Sometimes suffering can be, it can be politicized. Performed. It can be politicized. And it can be, uh, it can be transformed, as Gandhi has done, for example, for certain political purposes, right. certain transformatory politics purposes it can be used and uh, and the sufferers have common experiences many a times and then they can it can provide them a perspective to look at what oppresses them and how it oppresses them right and it could be a pedagogical and political tool for social transformation in fact so suffering can also be creative what's the future david what can be done? Well, I think Buddhism is a, is a very powerful therapy uh, to gain distance from one's attachments. Uh, but I don't think it's a complete answer to all so the having, problems. So having, having some detachment is the... I, I don't like the word solution too much, but... I think, it, I think that's a powerful therapy for certain purposes. And I think it works for people and has worked for people. Um, and that doesn't bring about any political change, though. <laughs> um, detaching yourself. From, in fact, it would seem to 
uh, it's the, the opposite direction, of this performative uh, it would seem stance. to lead in the direction of quietism right. and passivity uh, which is a worry but uh, for certain for certain kinds of suffering it might be a very good strategy now for something like uh, political what do you mean by kinds of suffering what are the kinds of suffering what oh, would you put, put in each of these buckets Oh, what would you suffer quietly about? What would you suffer performatively about? You know, what would you? I mean, let's say you've done, you just had an interview or a performance, and it went horribly. <laughs> well, then maybe one way to deal with it is just to detach oneself from one's desire. Otherwise, one drives oneself crazy. Uh, you know, so for something trivial like that, but it, it, it's not a form of political activism. It's it's. Quietism. It's the opposite. So I think for political activism, I think the kind of suffering that Gandhi and Martin Luther King and others talked about and the kind of self-purification and preparedness for suffering, this is also a, a very um, powerful strategy, I think, for political activism. I think it works well because it's... Uh, I don't know. Gandhi must talk about this too, but I remember in Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he talks about the need for a kind of self-purification as one of the first steps. And I, I think it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful political tool. So I think there are various solutions for various problems, not one that fits all, is my impression. How much of the self is there? As far as you're concerned, in, in in your context, now obviously one can perform this and you know try to acquire some kind of political currency and agency, acquire a political force, you know garner and get attention. Um, is is inner change, inner transformation, those sorts of things a part of? Uh, is your vocabulary, your toolkit, the way sociologists think about it? I know that's not your domain entirely, but. Uh, Definitely in certain in certain context, hmm. definitely the sufferings uh, where people have common experiences of the suffering for some reason, for some structural reason, right? For example, if you talk about the LGBT issues or transgender people who have come together and now we have a very vibrant trans movement going on in India, why they have come together? Because of the sufferings under certain structural, under certain world order, which is very, very fellow-centric, which is very, very patriarchal, which is based on gender binary, and op which is oppressive to these constituencies. And what, because what of this common there? suffering... So, they so that is banding together? That is banding together? Binding that's together, becoming, which, that's has transformed, uh, which has translated into a kind of political action, negotiating with, this, uh, with the state. And that's why they have got a Supreme Court judgment, Nalsa judgment, in 2014, right? And they're further trying to negotiate by taking Nalsa judgment as a tool. They're further negotiating with the state. So in this uh, in this instance, suffering has become a tool, a political tool for transforming their own lives and taking control of their own lives. Interesting. Right. Where are you on this, Vaisal? I think Gandhi must have worried about this a little bit, right? There is an inner life, soul side of things. There's a, there's an outer life, political aspect of things. Where does one go? What's the balance? What does one do? 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose I can uh, begin by going back to this question of um, detachment, uh, because of course Gandhi also counsels it, uh, but he gets his detachment. It comes via Buddhism, uh, but from the Gita, from Hinduism, and their detachment means uh, not becoming unfeeling or separating yourself from what happened. Not uh, becoming callous. Not becoming callous or no, not even being disinterested. But rather, detachment means separating your acts from their results. Sure. Nishkam karma, right? So what you need to do, and it goes back to the point I made earlier on, on living in the present and not in the future in this case. So if the f- future of an act is always its fruit, you do something now in order for something else to happen. Gandhi thinks... Look, if you somehow can manage to forget the future, to live in the present, first you will truly experience the present, which we never do because we always live between past and future. Um, and if you live in the present, we are like the child. You know, in his view, children um, can live in the present. They fully experience the present, not because they are superhuman and independent, but precisely because they are dependent creatures because they depend on parents and teachers and things like that. They do not need to consider the future. They can be fixated on a flower for, you know, in a garden for 20 minutes, half an hour, more. Uh, so if you act in the now without concern for its results, uh, uh, you know, but for purely moral reasons, then detachment becomes an activist uh, principle and proposition. But you know, to move away from Gandhi for a bit, but not very far, going to another Indian philosopher who was his contemporary, Muhammad Iqbal. So for Iqbal, and he historicizes the experience. Uh, you know, there are certain, when he, he looks at religions, he thinks there are certain religions, primary among them Buddhism, of course, with Dukkha, which has been mentioned already, which may actually be better translated as pain rather than suffering. Right. Insofar as Dukkha does not necessarily have duration, that kind of temporality built into it. In fact, it is ubiquitous, but almost, to use uh, uh, contemporary terms, structural. It's a pain that is structural. It, it's not the pain of a human being that has duration in the same way. So Buddhism and Christianity and maybe Shiism, Shia form of Islam. Uh, but when he describes the others with very schematically, he'll say, look, Hinduism, the problem for Hinduism is illusion. And, uh, you know, therefore it's solution, since you're speaking of solutions, is how to free yourself from the net of illusion, from Maya, right? It's a philosophical problem. Uh, for Buddhism, it's Dukkha. Right uh, and how to free yourself from pain. For Islam, he thinks it's fear that is the problem, uh, and the solution is how to free yourself from fear to become fearless. Uh, and Christianity is an interesting case. How does one become fearless? Uh, one way to do it would be in the Gandhian fashion, uh, which is to not think about the morrow, to live in the present. But to live not in the present in the sense of carpe diem, you know, we're all going to die anyway and we might as well enjoy ourselves, but to live morally uh, or ethically, if you prefer that use, in the, in the present. Um, uh, that makes you fearless because you, you're not worried about what's going to happen to you. And Gandhi refers to Islam very often in that way because he, he's very interested in martyrdom as a quality that is um, chosen uh, and that changes the world. Um, and Socrates is one example. Jesus is not actually in that way a very good example in the way 
uh, he has been thought of in Christian history. But for Gandhi, he's assimilated to people like uh, Socrates or the Shiite imams, uh, Hussein, Hassan and Hussein and Ali, right, who choose to sacrifice their lives uh, because that changes the world. Um, that is what also gives, in, a, in a, a curious way, access to the spiritual or to the inner. You, you choose to suffer no? in, in all of these situations. Yes, but, you know, and I, I hesitate um, uh, because uh, choice might not be the right word for it. Um, maybe you don't have a choice, as Arjuna did not have a choice. Uh, though you might try to flee or you might try or you might simply, as it were, give in um, and fight because you have no choice, let's say. And that's where the ambiguity comes in. Are those actions morally, uh, do they have moral gravity? Right. Just can I say, ask one thing, that whether Gandhi is strategizing his suffering? It is obviously strategically deployed. I mean, which is not to say that it's without any inner life and it's entirely spurious or anything, but... Uh, and then there is aware of the impact. Then there is an element of choice in it. In yes, there ways. is. But yes. you know, if I'm just thinking of a situation in which uh, someone is choiceless, uh, you know. Now, uh, let me give you an example which is both, which appears to be both full of choice and choicelessness. I think the answer might lie, uh, Faisal, and you you would know this because you've thought about this a little bit. On what preceded what, right? I mean, this the, this process of internal transformation inner life, yeah. suffering for one's own self, making it a part of your life. And obviously, later on, maybe if that's accurate and correct me if I'm wrong, it acquiring or him becoming a little bit of a political agent. What what came first? So, I mean, um, well, let me give you an example that Gandhi himself, sure. which is a quite um, tough one, hmm. right? So during the Second World War, so Gandhi is one of the earliest figures uh, who even before the war begins sees it as being primarily about anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, it was not seen as being that uh, until much later, sometimes after the war, in fact. Um, and Gandhi, you know, who had many Jewish friends from South Africa, was always um, uh, mindful of that dimension of Nazism. And so he has a correspondence with certain quite prominent uh, German Jewish intellectuals, including Martin Buber um, and Judah Magnus. Uh, and uh, he he gives his advice only when he's asked, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting. So, you know, what are the German Jews to do? Uh, and he says, well, if you can flee, you flee. If you can fight, you fight. If you can't do either, you must learn to die appropriately right. in a sacrificial way. Do not on any account let yourself be taken away in the middle of the night uh, by the Gestapo. Your neighbors must know they must never be able to pretend that they don't know what happened. Uh, and if you die in this way, voluntarily, you take a death that is inevitable. You're going to die anyway. But you die in a nonviolent way. That's uh, shahadat. That's shahadat. But, but also you li- die by claiming the very virtues that the Germans claim for themselves. Hmm. Uh, so if they claim to be brave and courageous and all that, you show by your actions that you are, in fact, you can be brave and braver and more courageous. And that is meant to shake them. It may or may not convert them. It may convert them in another life. But they'll notice it. They will notice it. And in doing so, you will lay claim to being the truest of Germans, not they. 
because they are soiling the name of Germany themselves. Now, this is a difficult thing to say to anyone who's undergoing that kind of persecution. Yeah. But, you know, I can't help feeling that when you look at the what happened a bit later, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, yeah. this is precisely what happened. You know, people with no hope of survival nevertheless fought, yeah. nevertheless resisted, not because they wanted to save their lives, yeah. but as a gesture to whom, to what, it must have been an act of inner transformation, among other things. Yeah. But it certainly, in Gandhi's view, also entailed that in the future, they might have died, but their descendants and the descendants of their own enemies could be also transformed, not just themselves. Their descendants would not feel humiliated that their, their ancestors were only victims. It's bad enough. And that the descendants of the Germans, of the Nazis, could also look back and say, in this very dark period of our history, these were the truest Germans. Right. Or the truest Europeans. Right. 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 And so that kind of act, which appears to have no material benefit... That's beautiful. ...is spiritually transformative, not only for yourself, for the person who dies, but for everyone else. Terrific. Great. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.